168. 168. Do you know what that number represents? That's the number of hours in one week. 168. Think of how your 168 might be divided. Now, we're going to go on averages here. These might be different for each one of us, but let's just try to speculate. Roughly, we'll spend 50 hours a week sleeping. Maybe some of you are saying, no way, I get way less than that. Uh, we'll spend 40 hours a week working, give or take. 25 hours a week eating, eating meals. Seven hours doing some kind of hygiene, at least I hope. Uh, <laughs> 35 hours watching TV. The average person watches five hours a day. Uh, if you want to notice something very, very humbling, uh, your smartphone will likely give you a screen report every week of how much time you look at your screen every day. Uh, so, 168, I mean, that leaves, after that, about 11 hours doing something else. If you're at church on Wednesdays and Sundays, that's probably about four hours in total. And then that leaves seven hours with hobbies or maybe hospitality or some kind of entertainment or maybe it's driving to and from different places. What is your 168? Do you know that God cares about it? Thinking of this sheds new light on the song, I Need You Every Hour. And if we think about it even more, maybe the Doobie Brothers got it more right with their song, Minute by Minute. <laughs> Exodus 19 to 24 is the part of the book when God sets up Israel as a people and sets them up as a society. Here he deals with his covenant he makes with them, what he promises to them and what he calls them to. The foundation of what he's called them to came in the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words, which is what we looked at last week, chapters 19 and 20. Now, in, chapters, in the last part of chapter 20 through chapter 24, God takes the broad principles of the Ten Commandments and applies them to their 168, applies them to their everyday life. So by doing this, God essentially tells them, I don't mean you to have religious platitudes that you pull out of your back pocket when it's convenient for you. No. I mean for these to actually impact how you live every single day. So if you have a Bible in front of you, you will, if you're looking at the Bible in the pew rack in front of you, it's red like this. You'll find Exodus chapter 21 on page 62, I believe. Yes? So turn to page 62. We're going to look at the last part of chapter 20 in a little bit. But what I want us to do now is just notice the expansion on the, new, the Ten Commandments. And when I look at this passage at a glance, just notice the wide array of areas of life that this passage touches on. So you look at the beginning of chapter 21. If you look at the ESV, you'll notice the heading that it says laws about slaves. Now, we're going to talk about more about that later. Now, those headings aren't a part of the original text. They're meant to be helpful for us. Um, so we might say more accurately, reading that beginning part of 21, that these are laws about the household. So you keep going, just these chapters at a glance. Chapter 21, verses 12 to 17, those are the little numbers after the big number. Uh, we're, we're told about capital offenses in society, different things that get the death penalty. 
So then in chapter 21, verses 18 to 36, we get laws about injuries to persons and animals. In chapter 22, verses 1 to 6, there are laws that protect property. Chapter 22, verses 7 to 15, there are laws that protect finance and business. Verses 16 to 17 in chapter 22, laws about sexual malpractice. Verses 18 to 20, capital offenses in religion. Chapter 22, verses 21 to 27, laws about people at risk. Chapter 22, verses 28 to 31, we see God's authority in various realms of life. Chapter 23, verses 1 to 9, laws concerning integrity. Chapter 23, verses 10 to 13, we see laws about timetables of work. And chapter 23, verses 14 to 19, see laws about religious festivals. This is a lot. And I hope you're buckled in because we're going to take about the next three hours to cover this line by line. (laughs) No, 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 I'm kidding. You already knew I was kidding. Uh, We can't cover all of this in detail today, but we can hit some highlights. But the question for us at the beginning is this. How should we view these laws that seem random and just on the face of it, a little all over the place? Well, we should remember, like we frequently do, that there are no wasted words in Scripture. This is God's Word. We should also remember that there are methods and purposes behind what we might see as random. Similar to other law codes of the time, you'll see a lot of ifs throughout this section and less of you shalls, if you notice that. That's because these are cases that are models or paradigms for the people. In other words, they give sample verdicts, especially relevant to their time and place, that would help them with a wide range of situations. So we should view just the wide range of these model verdicts as a clue. It's a clue that God cares about every aspect of our lives. This is reflected in other places in Scripture. It's reflected in the passage we read earlier, Colossians 3, 17. Reflected also in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. You may know it. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. So maybe take this section as a whole. Just the wide range of commands and areas of life it touches on. The main takeaway we can get is this. God calls us to live as if Every area of our lives comes under his authority and is an opportunity to honor him. God calls us to live as if every area of our lives comes under his authority and is an opportunity to honor him. Well, in this section of scripture, when God sets up a way of life and the foundations of a society for his people, we get to see that God cares about all aspects of our lives. We'll reflect on that more. But for the rest of our time, we're going to walk through this passage and look at some of those specific aspects of our lives that God cares about. I'm going to have four big, broad strokes, what God cares about. All right, the first one, the foundation. God cares that we worship him. God cares that we worship him. So remember that this section is an application of the Ten Commandments. So like the Ten Commandments, God's going to call his people to love him and to love their neighbor. So he'll call them to give him and give others everything that they're due. Just like the Ten Commandments, the commands of chapters 21 to 23 begin with God's call to worship him. 
But it's not only how they begin, it's also how these chapters end. So the call to worship God sort of like bookends to this section. So you see the first bookend in chapter 20, verses 22 to 26. We see the other bookend in chapter 23, verses 10 to 19. Let's try to see what God's doing. What's God's doing in these bookends? So you'll follow along as I read chapter 20, verses 22 to 26. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make, if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it out of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. So we think, when's the last time we saw Israel and what they were doing? We last saw Israel at the base of Mount Sinai, scared of God's presence, backing away from God, and appointing a mediator, Moses, to go to God on their behalf. Not necessarily a bad instinct. But here, as chapter 20 continues, whereas the people drew away from God, God drew near to them. And he appoints an altar, a place where he says he will come to them and bless them, a place where he would atone for their sins that separated them from him. So here, before any of the commands begin, God calls his people to worship him, and through the altar makes it possible for them to worship him. So that's sort of the first bookend. Well, then you flip to the other bookend in chapter 23, verses 10 to 19. And you look at that session as a glance, at a glance, and it covers Israel's work regulations. Shows us again that God cares about the regular rhythms of our lives, whether it be in our years, whether it be in our days, whether it be in our weeks. But it also covers the feasts there to hold to the Lord. So the concern of this section as a whole, chapter 23, verses 10 to 19, is that Israel worships God. It comes out most clearly in verse 13, where God says, Pay attention to all that I have said to you. Make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. So friends, in these bookends, ones to start and ones to end, God shows us that he cares about us worshiping him. And we can say even more than that, though. Go a little bit deeper and say that God cares that we worship him first and that we worship him alone. So many of us know the entire summary of the law, right? To love the Lord your God basically with your whole being and to love your neighbor as yourself. If we skip loving God and go straight to loving people, we might be humanitarians, but we will not be Christians. Christianity, friends, is not first about following a set of rules. If it was, then the only thing we'd be concerned about is trying to convince ourselves and convince God that we are really good at following rules and we are a good enough person. And friends, we could never do enough to do that. There is always something more that we could do. Some of you, if you've seen the movie Schindler's List, it's a very heavy movie. It was about Oscar Schindler who saves a, a number of Jewish people from the Holocaust by having them work in his factory. 
And by the end of the movie, you see all, this, all these groups of, of Jewish people coming to thank Oscar Schindler. And they're so thrilled that they've been saved. You know, the Allies had won. But Schindler was devastated. And he looks at what he's wearing. He looks at his watch. He sees the pen. He's like, I, I could have sold these. I, I, could have, I could have saved more people. And we would say about Oscar Schindler, you're being too hard on yourself. But in reality, in a way, he's actually right. He could have done more. We look at the poverty and the problems of this world, and if it's just on us to solve everything, if it's on us to establish ourselves as good people, then who, who among us has taken advantage of every opportunity to do that? We can never do enough. So Christianity is not first about following a set of rules. Christianity is first about being so enthralled with God that we worship him. We must start with this. Just like with how Solomon describes the beginning of wisdom in Proverbs, he says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So here, worshiping God is the beginning of the kind of life that God wants for us. This is how we were meant to live. The worship of God is the fuel on which we were meant to run. Augustine put it well, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. So we worship God first and we worship him alone. This is how God has made us to flourish both as individuals and as a people. Just so you see other gods, they will lead us to live, they will not lead us to live with true and authentic justice and care for others. So we are to make God, the one true God, our greatest good and our greatest authority because if left to ourselves, we make gods that prop up or at best conceal our selfish nature. Pastor David Gibson puts it like this. One God, the real God, the living God, commands love of him and love of my neighbor. The other gods the gods of wealth, success, achievement, advancement, command of trampling of my neighbor to get what I want. We start with the foundation of God. Worship God alone. Worship God first. So we also say this, without this foundation, there are no universal moral truths. There's no good ground for it which means there is no ultimate basis for equal human rights, which means that the weak have no basis to say to the strong that what they are doing is wrong. The foundation of worshiping God matters. It matters for everyone's good, and it matters because God is owed worship. This is what he's due, in him alone. So in a passage where God establishes a people, he establishes them on this foundation, right worship of him. He cares about that. He cares about that for his glory. He cares about that for their good. But God cares about something else. The second aspect of our lives that God shows he cares about in these laws is how we treat others. God cares that we treat people well. And the people said, duh. <laughs> God cares that we treat people well. This is just a broad sweeping statement. A lot can fit underneath it. This aspect of our lives that God cares about is a bit like a Walmart store. You never knew that so much could fit under one roof. <laughs> that you could buy a tank top, a gallon of milk, a TV, and a bicycle all in one place. 
Now, covering this aspect might feel like a trip to Walmart. It's going to be a little bit longer, okay? If you've ever been to Walmart and you're like on one section and then you forgot something on the other section, my goodness, you will get in your steps that day. Um, but bear with me. I'll try to give you some good signposts along the way. God cares that we treat people well. And before we get to the various situations this covers, let's address our motivations in this. Before we talk about who we care about and what situations we care about them in, let's talk about why we care about people. I think we see at least three motivations for treating people well in this section. First is really simple. We love others because God first loved us. We love others because God first loved us. You'll find this motivation expressed in chapter 22, verse 21, and chapter 23, verse 9. Both say similar things. Chapter 22, verse 21 says this, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So in other words, they were to treat weak and vulnerable people well because they were once weak and vulnerable and God saved them. Friends, this same motivation remains for us. We were once spiritually bankrupt and powerless, but God saved us. And how did God save us? By becoming spiritually weak and bankrupt and physically weak and bankrupt. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Do you know what this means? This means that if we as Christians fail to treat others well, then we fail to understand what God has done for us in the gospel. Our preacher next week will illustrate this very principle in the parable of the unforgiving servant who is forgiven an unpayable debt yet would not forgive another of a small debt. So friends, we love because God first loved us. This means we don't love others out of a selfish motivation to prove that we're good people. This is not our motivation. We love others because God has already declared us righteous because of Jesus in our place. We're freed from selfish motivations. We no longer have anything to prove. Jesus has won us God's favor. We love because God first loved us. So we said that we skip loving God, then we'd only be selfish humanitarians. But friends, if we skip loving people, then we will be hypocrites. So why treat people well? It's our motivation. Find another motivation, chapter 22, verse 27. See, that verse comes at the end of a paragraph about treating the poor well. And God grounds all of that treatment of the poor by saying this, very simply, for I am compassionate. For I am compassionate. So his people are to be compassionate to the poor because God is compassionate. Later, God will call them to be holy because he is holy. So treating other people well because we are to imitate God's character, that comes out clearly in all of the Bible, especially in a place like Ephesians 5, 1-2. Friends, this motivation remains for us. Ephesians 5 says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, 
and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Why treat people well? Well, we see many reasons why. You get a third one in chapter 22, verse 31. Chapter 22, verse 31. A third motivation to treat people well. Short phrase, he says, you shall be consecrated to me. God calls them to devote themselves to him. And this doesn't just inform how they treat other people. This informs everything about what they li- how they live. So we notice if you read through this section, the different kind of strange commands, at least the commands that seem strange to us. Even in, chapter, uh, even in verse 31 here, there's the command of you can't eat anything that's been previously torn by animals. So what's the deal with that? We read another place famously that you shall not boil a goat in its mother's milk. So what's the deal with that? Here's the clue. Chapter 22, verse 31. You shall be consecrated to me. God gave those commands so that they would be distinct from the people around them. By refraining from these things, they would show their devotion to the one true God. So friends, Jesus calls us, his people, to be the salt and light of the world. We show our devotion to the Lord not by, not by what comes into our mouths, but by, but by what comes out of our hearts. That's how we show our devotion to the Lord. So, signpost. Just check our bearings here. It's important that we know why we care for people well. But who are the people we're called to care for? And what situations should we care for them in? Well, I'm glad you asked. In our sections, we get a few broad categories of the kinds of people we need to especially care for and the aspects of our lives where we need to show care for people. Are you with me? Tracking? Okay. We should care for vulnerable people. We should care for vulnerable people. We've already referred to how Israel was to treat the sojourners among them. We've referred to that verse. So remember when they went out of Egypt, they went out with a mixed multitude. So there would be sojourners among them. That would be foreigners or immigrants or refugees. God called them to pay particular attention to sojourners because a group like this would be easily taken advantage of, easily discriminated against, easily mistreated. So just as an aside, okay, I think this is a relevant topic for our time. As faithful Christians in America, we can land in different places as far as how to promote safety and secure borders. Okay, caveat there. But I wonder if our gut reaction to immigrants and to needy people in general is don't bother me and don't ruin what we've built or if our gut reaction is compassion and empathy. Now, before we say, hold on, hold on, you don't understand, before we say that, let's be quick to hear, slow to speak. Before we object, make sure our attitude in this area involves compassion. That's That's what's said here. So beyond sojourners, God points out Other vulnerable people, like the widows and orphans, chapter 22, verse 22, points out the needy and the poor, chapter 22, verses 24 and 25. So all these people together would be at risk not to have the same kinds of protection as others have in society. But there is one group of vulnerable people that you may have noticed 
we glanced over at the beginning of chapter 21 probably caught your eye. This group's referred to as slaves. Now, when you look at, look at the beginning of chapter 21, you notice verse 2. Okay, if you're looking at the ESV, there will be a little footnote after the word slave. And you look down to the bottom of the page, and you'll see that the Hebrew word abed that's translated as slave could also be translated as servant. Now, the vast majority of commentators on Exodus believe that this is a better translation. Servant, better translation than slave. Now, again, another caveat is not that there aren't any complicated things to work through when reading this section, but I think we should clarify some things because we bring a lot of baggage to that word slave. When you read the description, the beginning of chapter 21, verses 1 to 11, you'll see that what's envisioned here is not what we envision when we picture slavery, especially American slavery. Uh, so it, it's, what's pictured more is indentured servitude. It's much more humane. It is different. So just some key highlights. Okay, look at the beginning of chapter 21. And this service was intended to be temporary, not permanent. It starts off right in verse 1. So even if this servant was given a family, his, he would not be permanently separated from his family. This, this servitude was a way to receive housing. It was a way to receive pay to prevent people from falling into abject poverty. So another highlight here, people are prohibited from kidnapping others and selling them. See this in verse 16. So people are never treated as property. People are never treated as property. This section is going to go on to talk about property, and people are not mentioned in that section. People are treated as people, as image bearers of God. So you notice another highlight, verse 20, verse 26 indicate that their masters are not to harm their servants. There's even a possibility that their masters would treat them so well that these servants would want to stay with them permanently. See that in verse 5. So just another aside, this is the section where we get the first mention of the lex teleonis. That's the eye for an eye. You've probably heard that in other settings. And that uh, saying, eye for an eye, that kind of justice is often misunderstood. It said that eye for an eye leaves everyone blind. But it's, it's meant to promote the principle that the punishment should match the crime. That's the principle it's meant to promote. It's, the punishment does not always come with maiming. All right, so the, I'll, I'll prove this to you here. So you look at verses 26 and 27, chapter 21. When a man struck his servant's eye, the punishment was not that he lost his eye as well. The punishment was that he lost his servant. It's exact justice. It's not identical retribution. Okay, so I know we were in the weeds a little bit with those sections, but I just wanted to clarify. So these are some tougher things to read in this section, stuff about slaves, stuff about eye for an eye. But remember what we're talking about. God called them to treat vulnerable people well, including their servants. So their servants would be vulnerable people. These would be people on the lowest end of the economic scale. And so their servitude was kind of a safety net. And what God, by providing these laws, God was ensuring that this safety net would hold and not break. So the closest analogy we probably have to the servitude described here is actually joining the military. So when you join the military, you sign up for a time. It's not permanent. 
you're under an authority, you still have rights, you're meant to be treated well, and you can turn it into a career if you want. And what's more, many people join the military to spring out of poverty. So I think that's a better analogy. But we should reflect on God's concern for vulnerable people. We should reflect on that. Just ask ourselves, how are we doing in this area? How are we doing in treating vulnerable people well in our everyday life? You remember the 168, right? Jesus asked us in Matthew 5, if we love only those who love us, what good is it? Do not even tax collectors do the same? You know, there are vulnerable people around you that you probably don't know about. Friends, family, church family, who go through trials and difficulties that they're either really good at hiding at or you haven't asked about. So I'm not saying to be intrusive, but I am saying to be thoughtful, intentional. But what's more, we ask ourselves how we're doing in treating vulnerable people. If we're not careful, we can intentionally or even subconsciously go out of our way to avoid people who are poor and weak and vulnerable because they're an inconvenience to us. Like it or not, friends, this is a big building block for why suburbs flourished. Don't deal with the inconvenient people anymore. Let's move somewhere else. So we have to work against that tendency in us and treat vulnerable people well. Let's be people of the word in this. So God called his people not just to treat certain people well, but to treat people well in certain aspects of life. So you keep going. We see this when God talks about property. See this when God talks about sex. You're going to notice in chapter 22. Look at chapter 22, verses 14 to 15. It says this, If a man borrows anything of his neighbor, and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for a tiring fee. So here is God applying the eighth commandment to everyday life in a very specific way. God asks Israel, do you want to treat people well? Well, when you borrow their stuff, take care of it like it's your own. And don't take advantage of your neighbor. Caring about people even in this aspect of life. Continue on in chapter 22, verses 16 to 17. It says, If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. What do these verses do? So we should say at the beginning, these verses presume that there's consent between the two parties. But it also reminds us that in that culture, if a woman had sex outside of marriage, the prospects for the future for this woman would be very bad. And so her father was put in place not to constrict her, not to control her or exploit her. Her father was put in place to protect her. So God asks his people, do you want to treat others well? Then don't go outside the confines I have intended for sex. You want to treat others well? Don't go outside of those confines. So these verses remind us that having sex outside of marriage is taking something that doesn't belong to you. We should not have it until we give ourselves an absolute commitment to that person in a marriage vow. The commitment comes first. You do not get to enjoy the fruits of that commitment before you do it. 
So it's not because God is approved. It's because God wants to protect us. God cares that we treat other people well. Are you tired in Walmart yet? Uh, we haven't covered everything that this section has to say. We may have left certain questions you have about details unanswered. Maybe many of those questions are about the capital punishment. And just a, a quick note, the capital punishment is usually reserved for preserving the community so that they would not substitute something for God. It would have a detrimental effect. A lot more to say about that. That's all I have to say about that, like Forrest Gump. Um, God called his people to treat others well. He gives them reasons to do that. He gives them situations to do that. He even gives them specific examples of people to treat well. God's very thoughtful in giving this command. So we're almost done with the Walmart trip, but before we leave, I'm going to grab some things off of the rack next to the register and get some takeaways here, some lessons, all right? Yes, this is basically the third sub-point within a point. Bear with me. We've got motivations, situations, and lessons, okay? Lessons from this time. Lesson number one is that God was not setting up heaven on earth here. God's not setting up heaven on earth. The one thing to notice about this section of law is that all the situations which God called his people to care for others well, one thing to notice about that is that it assumes that people still sin. It just assumes it. Theirs would be a society of sinful people, and God gave them these laws in response to their sin. It reminds us of how Jesus talked about divorce in Matthew 19, verse 8. He said that because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. From the beginning, it was not so. So God gave these laws to regulate their sinful behavior. So what was once right in Genesis 1 to 2 fell in Genesis 3. And God has had a plan to redeem people from sin ever since. So lesson two, God's instructions are meant to give us wisdom for all of life. God's instructions are meant to give us wisdom for all of life. There's a wide array of areas that God touches on in here. It shows us that God cares about every aspect of how we live. And God gets into a lot of specifics. And while he gets into a lot of specifics, he doesn't get into all of the specifics. Right? I mean, the Bible isn't a 15,000-page manual that's comprehensive for every possible situation that you will ever face in life. In a way, I'm very thankful that the Bible is not that. But by giving Israel example precedents, Israel could study those precedents, train themselves to apply those principles to new situations that they would face. So it tells us that just because the Bible doesn't address a particular situation doesn't mean we automatically have license. It doesn't mean that we can't use the Bible to think well about that situation, to get wisdom. So as much as we might want the 15,000-page manual to know the exact thing we're supposed to do, we study the precedents and the principles and apply them to new situations. So we actually get examples of this. Examples in the New Testament. There are a few of them. Of New Testament authors quoting Old Testament law, but applying that principle in a new way. All right, so one just more lighthearted one is 1 Timothy 5, verse 18. You can turn there if you like. I will quote it for you. Um, 1 Timothy 5, verse 18 says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. 
That's a quote from Deuteronomy, Old Testament law. So what Paul's doing, he is appealing to a principle and applying it to a new situation. The principle being not to starve the thing that is working for your good or else it will make it harder for that thing to work for your good. Paul takes that principle and applies it to supporting elders who labor in preaching and teaching. That's verse 17 of 1 Timothy 5. So just, friends, thank you that I am a well-fed ox. I very much appreciate that. Thank you for supporting me so that I can work well to the best of my ability for you. But just to be clear, we remember that Jesus has fulfilled all of these laws. Now, sometimes people divide the laws into you know, civil stuff that govern them as far as the society. They'll divide it into ceremonial aspects, more customs, and then they'll divide it into moral aspects. Jesus hasn't just fulfilled part of that. He's fulfilled all of that. Matthew 5, 17. But we can still see principles behind those laws that reveal God's heart, reveal how God wants us to live. And so what's the main broad principle we've been considering? God wants us to care for other people well. We even see that in principles about a culture that's way foreign to us. We can see that heart behind it, which makes it still relevant. All right, last lesson. We're going to move on. Almost done. We apply these principles in light of the new covenant. So remember how 1 Peter 2 last week used the same phrases God used to describe his people in Exodus 19 as royal priesthood, holy nation. So this tells us that the community where we apply these principles, where we treat people well, is the local church. We see all those commands in the New Testament, those one another commands, which we've tried to summarize in our church covenant. We're called to treat other people well still even as the New Covenant community. All right, God is setting up a people in this section which seems like a grab bag of rules, just sticking his hand in a bag and taking stuff out and seeing what he gets in his hand. God shows us that he cares about their foundation. Start with him. He shows us that he cares how we treat other people. He cares about our motives in that. He cares about actual people. And he cares about real-life situations. Now, two more things quickly. This will be, these will be shorter points, I promise you. Two more things God shows he cares about. God shows that he cares about our hope for the future. God shows he cares about our hope for the future. Look with me at chapter 23, verses 20 to 33. Chapter 23, verses 20 to 33. It's here God promised his people their inheritance in the land of Canaan. So remember that these promises were for the nation of Israel under this covenant, and the blessings of this covenant depended on their obedience. So further, we have to notice that what's happening with the people in Canaan was unique for this time. So God uniquely delegated Israel to execute his judgment on the people of Canaan. So we might think that this is genocide. No, it's not genocide. It's dispossession, forcing them out of the land. You can read of that in these verses. And just as a spoiler... God's going to force his people out of this same land for the same sins that the Canaanites committed. Spoiler. So what's God doing here? Chapter 23, verses 20 to 33. God's winding down the actual content of this section. 
He calls them to look to the future and says to focus on him and to hope in him. Friends, God calls us to do the same. God has promises for us as new covenant people. We remember what the book of Hebrews says, that here, this place, we have no lasting city. We seek the city that is to come. Here we face tribulations and trials while we hope in Jesus who has overcome them. Don Carson tells the story of Florence Chadwick, the first woman ever to swim the English Channel. And then later in 1952, she was determined to swim from Catalina Island to mainland California. This would be a 22-mile swim. Now, the day she set out for it, it was foggy and chilly. And when she started swimming, she couldn't even see the boats around her. And so she kept on trying. Her coach made her keep going. But after 15 hours, she just stopped. And they had to pull her out of the water. So the next day, she had a press conference. And she said, you know, I'm not trying to make excuses, but... If I could have just seen the shore, I know I would have finished. Two months later, she got to prove her point. The next try was clear, sunny, and she could see the shore as she swam, and she made it. Friends, our hope for the future, that we will one day see Jesus and be like him, affects our everyday lives. You remember the 168. If our hope is the treasure of heaven, then we will hold on more loosely to what is here, and then we will more freely give it away. This means our generosity and how we view and treat our possessions shows where our hope and security lies. It's either here or it's in heaven. Friends, when we hope in the future, we will be able to endure the everyday trials of life better. If we can keep our eyes fixed on the shore ahead, we will be able to keep on swimming. So friends, what is your shore ahead? Do you look at it? Do you have this hope? If you do not, you should pay attention to the last point, especially. Last point, God cares about our peace with him. God cares about our peace with him. Look at chapter 24. Just look at it at a glance. Don't have time to read it. What's going on in this chapter? You notice how it starts. It starts off with blood. It might make us a little uncomfortable. So notice what this means. So Moses sprinkles half of the blood on the altar and half of it on the people. And it could have been he sprinkled it on the pillars that represented the people. But what God had just done is he had just finished giving the words of the covenant to his people, what he promises to them and what he is calling them to. Then Israel agreed to live up to their side of the covenant. And now we have a scene with blood on both parties. So this blood is a seal of the promises that they're making. They're like wedding rings, but way more intense. God and the people united together, both saying, let what happened to this animal happen to me if I break this covenant. And what happened after that? After that, there is a meal where God is present and they could gaze upon him, at least in part. They were no longer fearful of God's presence as they were just a few chapters ago. They were secure in God's presence 
because they had been covered by blood. So isn't it interesting that as soon as Israel promised to obey God in all aspects of their lives, as soon as that happens, God provides a sacrifice because he knows they will fall short. We will never be good enough at obeying God for us to have peace with him. No. We look out for number one far more than we care for the weak and the vulnerable. We take what's not ours for our own pleasure and benefit. We look at our everyday lives and we must conclude that if we are going to have peace with God, that we need a sacrifice. And friends, we have the perfect one. Whereas we have missed so many opportunities where we have done nowhere near enough, Jesus took advantage of every opportunity. He lived the perfect life. And then he shed his blood on the cross as the seal of the new covenant for the forgiveness of our sins. So having turned from our sin and trusting in him alone, we have peace with God. And the meal that we eat that commemorates that reminds us that because of Christ's sacrifice, we will one day feast with him face to face. Friends, hope in Jesus. Would you do that today if you've never done it before? We would love to talk to you more about what that means. This will mean a new way of life, but friend, peace with God is worth it and is found in no other person than the Lord Jesus. So we go forward, seeking to follow God in every aspect of our lives. And though his spirit is in us, friends, we will fail. But our peace with God will not be broken. Because our peace with God is established in Christ's blood shed for us. I think of the lines of the hymn that we sung last week. I hear the words of love. I gaze upon the blood. I see the mighty sacrifice. And I have peace with God. Let's pray. Lord, we, we look to what you call us to, and we must say that we fall drastically short. We look to the selflessness you call us to, and we see our selfishness. We look to the foundation of worshiping you that you present for your glory and our good, and we see that we skip this foundation and begin with ourselves instead. So God, we look at the daily aspects of our lives, how we treat the people around us, how we act in certain situations, and we say we have missed many opportunities. And we have not done nearly enough to establish our own goodness. But God, then we take a look at Jesus, who has done enough, who did please you in every way and every aspect of his life, and he died for all the times that we did not. And so God, we cling to his sacrifice, and we are so thankful that now we have peace with you. Would we live from that peace? And from that peace, would we walk as you have called us to walk? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.